From Odyssey, I'm Lauren Berry, and this is the On Deadline podcast, where we take a closer look at stories from our radio newsrooms across the nation. At On Deadline today, we're looking at the ever-changing world of healthcare days after the 51st anniversary of the initial Roe v. Wade decision. Looking back to January 22, 1973, the United States Supreme Court ruled in a 7-2 decision in favor of Jane Roe, saying that it was a fundamental right for women to choose whether or not to have abortions. And that right was federally protected no matter what else went on at the state level. The decision was seen as a pillar of women's rights and a giant step forward in the world of health care until a year and a half ago. In 2022, the Supreme Court took up the case once more, with the now conservative majority ruling that the earlier court had gotten it wrong. Roe was overturned, sparking months of bills, debate, legal challenges, and calls for action. Here's where things currently sit. According to Planned Parenthood, 14 states have eliminated access to abortions. Six states have placed what the group called severe restrictions on abortions, and 10 states have had some sort of restriction put in place. That leaves 20 states where abortion is still fully accessible to those seeking it. While some thought that removing the protections Roe gave would reduce the number of abortions in the country, a recent study found the opposite. The Guttmacher Institute found that abortions continued to rise in 2023, with many traveling out of state to areas where abortion is more accessible. Now experts say that 2024 could potentially bring even more changes to abortion restrictions and laws. To break down what's next, Mary Ziegler, a professor of law at the University of California, joined Odyssey in the the Bay Area. Monday, January 22nd, will mark the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, a landmark decision that secured the right to safe and legal abortions. And that held steady until 2022 when it was overturned. So from your vantage point, what are the conversations focused on right now when we are talking about abortion and reproductive rights? Well, I think there, there are probably two parallel conversations, one concerning what's been going on in the states. I think both with respect to a growing number of state bans and fights in state courts about whether those bans violate state constitutions. And then conversely, action at the federal level, which has been taking place both in federal court and increasingly whether questions concerning what 2024 presidential election is going to mean for reproductive rights. Yeah, that you kind of you laid it all out for me very well, because that's that's exactly the elements of this conversation that I want to get into. So let's start with the, the federal level. You know, what efforts are being made on that side of things to reestablish these rights, uh, these reproductive rights? And, you know, wh where are the hurdles and roadblocks where that's concerned on a federal side? Well, I think at the, at the federal level, really what we're talking about going into 2024 is not a probability that there'll be new protections introduced for reproductive rights. We're really more looking at the possibility if a Republican is elected of new restrictions being imposed on the national level, either through court decision or through executive action. We haven't seen, I think, much prospect of federal legislation passing to protect reproductive rights. Obviously, that could change, but 20, the 2024 election isn't really shaping up at the moment uh, in a way that would make that look likely. There's, of course, some steps that could be taken through executive action, but I think it's worth emphasizing that, you know, the status quo we have now in terms of what's available in states and at the federal level can't be taken for granted, right? That, that what exists now could be eroded too. Well, and, and, you know, on that with the federal side of things, of course, being so tied to how politics are playing out, you know, I, I kind of 
I have to bring it up that recently former President Donald Trump said that he was proud of his role in overturning Roe versus Wade, but he did also urge Republicans to take a cautious approach when it comes to this issue. You know, what, what do you think he's meaning by that? And what is he trying to impart to Republican voters here in 2024? Because obviously the primaries are just getting started. Well, I think uh, former President Trump understands that abortion is not a winning issue right now for Republican candidates. And I think he's advising his fellow Republicans essentially not to talk about abortion. And there are two reasons for doing that. One, obviously, the Republican position on abortion is unpopular. But also, two, I think Republicans don't want to be put on record as saying they're not going to do anything about abortion in office. And the incentives for Trump, of course, would change if he were elected, because then he would not be in a position where he could seek re-election and the incentives may line up for him very differently to try to please anti-abortion donors or voters who were among those who fought the hardest to try to keep him in office following the 2020 election uh, than he does now when he actually needs to win the 2024 election. So I think what Trump's comments tell us is that one, Republicans are struggling to find a message, but also two, there may be a disconnect between what Republicans say on the campaign trail in 2024 and what they actually do once in office. Well, does the same hold true in any respect for the Democrats when it comes to the, you know, I, I feel like they would just have to hold uh, steady to their message of supporting abortion rights. But, you know, I don't know if that equals a, a shoe in for them as far as getting votes. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think Democrats are probably going to overpromise and underdeliver in the sense that they're going to say they're going to be able to actually codify reproductive rights at the federal level when they probably won't. I think for Democrats, the real challenge challenge is not that their positions on abortion are unpopular. That doesn't seem to be true now. It's rather that voters may not be motivated to pick Democratic candidates based on the abortion issue, either because they're not convinced Democrats can do anything or because they don't understand what a Republican president could do, even if Congress is unwilling to act. I think that's a really fundamental point that most, most people don't understand. And because you know, Democrats have to translate support for reproductive rights and ballot initiatives and other measures into support for Democratic candidates. And they've had some success in doing that, but it's unclear how much that's going to happen in 2024. There's no doubt that abortion will continue to be a topic of concern and debate for politicians and Americans alike throughout 2024. It's an election year, but abortion is part of a wider conversation about health care. And health care is an integral part of the country's overall economic health. Every January, pharmaceutical companies announce whether or not they'll raise costs of their drugs. And this year was no different from years past. According to the drug price nonprofit 46 Brooklyn Research, more than 600 drugs are expected to see prices jump this year, most by an average of 5%. But drug prices aren't the only thing going up. A recent study from researchers at Tufts University found that rising insurance premiums are having a direct impact on flattening wages. To share more on this, Dr. Darius Mozafarian, a cardiologist at Tufts and lead author of the aforementioned study, joined Odyssey. 
about 50 million Americans are covered by health insurance by their employer, and that has, that's been pretty constant over the last 30 years. And, you know, the employer, when they look at what they pay their employees, the total package is their, you know, a, a salary, their wages, their health care, and, you know, other, other benefits. About 30 years ago, 8% of that total compensation package was, was health care. Now, uh, in just 30 years, it's skyrocketed to almost 20%, to 18% now of all compensation is, is due to health care. And so money is, you know, literally coming out of the pocket of, of the employee and going going to health care costs. Uh, and if you break down, you know, what, what that has done to the average American family, um, it's a loss of about $9,000 per year in the most recent time period. And over the, the 30 years, the average family has lost a cumulative of $125,000 in wages. And so this is really just a, a striking additional problem of our rising healthcare costs. Pretty significant. And apparently what you found also was that the increase uh, has pretty much disproportionately affected low-income workers as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, for the, for the wealthiest, uh, you know, families, let's say at the, you know, top 5% of, of the income bracket, as a percentage of their compensation, healthcare spending has gone from 2% to 4% of their wages. So, you know, they lost about 2% of their wages, which is still not not nothing. But for a family, let's say at the at the 20th percentile of wages, you know, about a, about a fifth of the way up, their lost salary has gone from about 13% of their salary to 30% of their salary. So, so not only is this causing lost wages for Americans, but it's dramatic influencing low-income workers. And there's been a lot written about, you know, sort of the stagnation of the middle class, the rising income inequality in this country, how that's leading to political change, you know, other change, rural and and, uh, suburban uh, troubles. And most of that has focused on tax policy and other uh, other policies. But our findings show that a lot of this issue of of wage flattening and income inequality is also due due to health care. And there are also disparities by race. And so the average white family lost about 14% of their of their uh, compensation due to health care compared to 20% for the, the average Asian, Black, or Hispanic family. While things may seem doom and gloom, there are some positives in the world of healthcare. One major win was the recent slashes in insulin prices. Insulin is a drug taken by more than 8 million people in the U.S. In 2021, the average list price for a vial of the drug in Canada, just over the border, was $12. In the U.S., it was more than $98. To share more on the effect of the new markdowns, Antonio Chacha, the CEO of 46 Brooklyn Research, joined Odyssey in New York City. Just how much is Sanofi reducing its insulin prices? Well, we're looking at insulin price cuts of all major manufacturers here at the start of this year at around 70 to 80 percent relative to the previous list prices that were on the books as of December 31st. So Sanofi is kind of the last of big three pharma insulin producers to fall in line here? Well, actually, they're all doing it essentially in unison with one another. 2024 is the year that the proverbial bubble gets popped on the legacy insulin products that have been much maligned over their inflated prices over the last decade. Why is that? Why did they cut their prices? Is it 
the fact that maybe trademarks or something are expired and it's kind of fair game for everybody now? Well, in many ways, you know, the prescription drug supply chain operates in many complicated and convoluted ways. But the thing that I think folks need to understand is, is that at the end of the day, we're working with publicly traded companies across the drug channel. Manufacturers sell drugs to wholesalers who sell drugs to pharmacies who ultimately are paid by pharmacy benefit managers on behalf of insurance companies. Those five main layers are all publicly traded companies that are in the business of making more money off the drugs. Those drugs have a, a, essentially a life expectancy when it comes to patent life. Drug makers only get so much time to take money out of an exclusive patent arrangement, and then eventually generic and biosimilar competition take over. Except that's not what's happened in the insulin space, unfortunately. Inflated prices that are largely governed by kickback, uh, drug makers pass them to insurance companies and government programs in exchange for preferring those drugs. As such, expensive drugs essentially never die until policy steps in, which is what happened here in 2024, where a Biden administration policy from 2021 essentially started penalizing drug makers beyond the list price of the drug, meaning that if the drug was $400 in the old system, the drug maker might have to cough up at least $400 to Medicaid programs in exchange for covering it. The Biden administration lifted a cap that essentially removed the zero wall, meaning that drug makers could have to pay hundreds of dollars to Medicaid programs in addition to offering it for free. Drug makers wanted no part of it, so they basically bowed out and they popped the bubble of the prices, thus eliminating their penalty exposure. So how can we expect healthcare to factor in as the leading presidential contenders, that's current President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump, try to garner votes with their respective policies and plans? Biden's proposed agenda for a second term is expected to include strengthening the Affordable Care Act by making enhanced federal premium subsidies permanent. Those have already helped about 10 million people afford coverage on the Obamacare exchanges. For his part, Trump is renewing calls to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. But he's never presented his own Obamacare replacement. Still, as ABC News reported, Trump secured some significant policy changes during his first stint in the Oval Office. These include efforts to bring more transparency to prices charged by hospitals and paid by health insurers. And there's also a paradox for the former president. You see, he could be bragging about Operation Warp Speed on the campaign trail. That program managed to create a COVID-19 vaccine in less than a year, something that most experts said was impossible. But he hasn't been talking about it since his supporters largely object to that very vaccine. As for abortion, Biden supports the return of Roe v. Wade. Trump, who appointed three of the justices who ruled to overturn Roe, has actually taken various stances. Most recently, he vowed to broker a compromise, and he even warned fellow Republicans that outright bans on abortion will fail. He promised that, quote, for the first time in 52 years, you'll have an issue that we can put behind us. This show is produced by Joe Heady, Christy Strauser, Myron Kaplan, and Bill Smee. I'm Lauren Berry. Thanks for listening to On Deadline, Odyssey serving of a top news story just for you. Subscribe on the Odyssey app or wherever you find your podcasts to stay informed. 